Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure, once again, it's been, I mean, look, I'm in COVID time myself, but it seems like nine months since we last spoke, I mean, in a recorded, like, to be aired fashion. It's been an inordinate length of time since we last chatted, right? Well, I, I'm I'm not going to contradict you, but I did just see it said eight months ago, but you never know with these approximations. <laughs> so eight, nine months, there's no need to split hairs. That so, is, yeah, that's crazy. It's kind of obscene, really. But we have had the, well, I will, I'll use the term pleasure. You can pick whatever uh, term you want to <laughs> use. We have had the ability to play a, an extended game of just playing Chaos for, mm. I guess, maybe three or four of those months did did it stretch out that long for that so we so did we do seven games in the end six games in the end six games in the end and i missed one yeah but one was extended which i think kind of sniffed it into the additional month that i'm saying there so Mm -hmm. maybe not a full Mm -hmm. month but you know three and a good bit months yeah 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 so and yeah go on go on i have a variety of topics here um in a variety of different directions but you out of out of all the players, I think you were doing a, a multi-level review of the experience, which I found fascinating. Most of the players <laughs> just kind of showed up and you know appreciated that yeah. dice would be rolled and things would happen and this kind of stuff. But you seem to have taken it on a variety of different. Yeah, there was a kind of anthropological direction. There was definitely a heavy sociological direction. There was a, a deeper philosophy direction. There were a wide mm-hmm. variety of Barney Dickers that turned up to various games and also narrated, <laughs> although you did stop at some stage and just declare that you would give no more narration to the Just Playing Chaos game uh, in your particular podcast, Loco Ludus. So in terms of your experience, <laughs> should, we, should we cut it in the various forms? How would you like to approach this particular problem? Okay. Well, firstly, I would say it wasn't. it's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's a problematic do we call it a problematic and said, I guess I don't always think about these escapades in those clearly defined brackets. So, so experientially, they're just, I'm just thinking, mm. right? And, and it's bouncing in all of those different, those different directions. So I suppose, you know, I came to the, I came to the game with all back history and that amazing insight that you gave me on on my podcast on Loco Ludus about where the idea came from, which gave me the inspiration to to adopt Australian accent. So so then as another aspect of that is, you know, I recall that I said, yeah, Tom, you should play online, play online more. And you were saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, oh, and of course, world, it would have happened. I mean, I'm unfortunately, I'm I'm. Yeah, it's so far removed from the perfect world in so many different ways. You were an instigator with regards to this in particular, which I, I don't know if I've explicitly narrated through the podcast, but let me air it here. You seem to have a lot of really great online gaming experiences and mysteriously, you know, some, some participants are never really invited to any of these things. So I thought, okay, the way to make this explicit <laughs> is actually yeah. to invite Barney to one of these things and show him that yeah. uh, I'm the kind of person that's easily excluded from various i'm a bit instigatory i'm a bit in your face for a certain group of people and um it often interests me when i'm contacted by friends for example that want to have some online forum associated with some piece of television or whatever and i turn Mm -hmm. up and i'm there by myself and then i realize actually they've created another group for everyone else tom's in one group he's doing (laughs) his thing and then everyone else is in the other group 
Uh, although yeah. I have caused, uh, yeah, I have caused occasional <laughs> fractions online. I really, yeah. so I kind of feel that way associated with our, whatever's working towards this, our communicative relationship that yeah. this may have actually been the case in the circumstance. Okay, well, um, no, but you're not necessarily wrong. But no, I don't think, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I've excluded you. Um, so I'll come back to that, but I... I, you know, obviously the pandemic shifted a lot of things and, and it has done for me in terms of the gaming as well. And yeah, no, and I, and I think it has, it has been good uh, online play because I think you get to play with people who are really into it. And, mm. and I, I probably said that before. And I think that is a real virtue. And the moment that I realized that I didn't have to use online dice rollers. Mm or buy into all of that stuff. I just felt like, well, we, you know, it was as simple as our conversation now, basically. Mm. Um, and you, you know, it, it, in some ways, you know, you did that. You also did a massive load of work for it with the maps and everything mm -hmm. to work online. So that was, that was, that was really impressive. I think, um, I think in terms of the games, uh, and, uh, in uh, getting you in there, it's very difficult juggling different groups of people mm. time-wise as much as anything else and one of the things that i haven't always well one of the things i've tried to do from playtests of my game it hasn't always worked out that way but one of the things i've wanted to do is play with little groups of people who know each other somehow mm. so that there's no uh, there's no getting to know people needed, so we can just get playing. Do you think that was necessary? I mean, I've always found that to be completely no. and utterly artificial. Yeah. And certainly, I, yeah. I mean, the Just Plain Chaos setup was exactly in that light. My view is that people that have a shared interest in doing anything will oftentimes find kinship and discussion yeah. points. And I know specifically that um, Matt Gibson and Chris Abbott, because they live relatively close to one another, um, have actually, well, they're about 45 minutes drive apart. But I think, you know, these kind of new connections, and certainly when I did it at work, I brought in a couple of people that I knew externally or one person I knew externally specifically. Mm -hmm. And that was incredibly important for them and my coworkers as well to kind of meet and interact. So my view is that actually, I think these kind of things are really very artificial. I think the need for people to know each other prior and this kind of, I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things about the, you know, online role playing, yeah. what have you, scenarios is that, Actually, the existential respect that comes from, um, and we'll get into the YOLO playing abilities <laughs> a little bit later, perhaps, <laughs> in this discussion. But I think <clears throat> what interests me through this is not any kind of shared relationship. And I think a lot of that's really artificial as well. I mean, it could just be that I am constantly moving into groups where I, you know, don't necessarily know everyone and concerned and, and just have to, you know, adapt through that. But I think, um, yeah, I, I would certainly question that, and obviously the Just Blank Chaos game is part of that. Yeah, you know, you, you're, you're, absolute, you, you're absolutely right. You're not wrong there at all. I, yeah, I can't... And I think I think my experience of, of doing that with people, running the playtests with people who know each other, yeah, it, and when they haven't so much, it doesn't make so much difference. I guess, I don't know, just something, just... I just was wanting maybe maybe that was my initial idea something but in terms of getting you into the game i think there's all, there are also these questions of time time frames and i know you're busy and you know i'm busy and mm -hmm. i know i'm busy and you know but you're busy, busy people make time i mean i think the 
nature of these things. I mean, I, I've yeah. taken the afternoon off work in part to have this conversation with you. Yes. So, I mean, my view is that particularly through the pandemic, because I find myself working more than I did prior to the pandemic, you need new rules and boundaries and the work-life mm -hmm. balance for me has completely gone out the window. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's important to make time in these circumstances. And the thing that fascinates mm -hmm. me through actually, because a lot of the stuff that I described leading up to the Just Playing Cars game, I think you've now actually explicitly experienced, um, which is something mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a bit mm -hmm. more about. Um, mm -hmm. You've talked a little bit about the planning, the plot, for want of a better point, I don't want to use the, the, the narrative word here, but the way that I put a lot of planning into kind of turning point plot construction, lots of information that was never actually touched upon, <laughs> you know, which yeah. I don't personally find frustrating because I think a lot of this stuff is associated with kind of, you know, when you experience a, a broth within a soup where the bones have been boiled for, you know, many hours prior, you get the sense that there's a lot more. And that's a, a, a feeling that I like to give in games. A yeah. sense that this environment is, is broader than just the individual. And certainly it's more for the individual to pick up information than it is for everything mm -hmm. to be, you know, like an introductory, you know, play yourself D and D book where you're just reading through and you know, after about five to seven read-throughs, you will have encountered most of the uh, the meat in the scenario. I like to try mm -hmm. to create something which seems to be almost sublime. I mean, I think sublime is the emotion I'm looking for with regards to just how deep the universe is. Um, we might talk a little mm -hmm. bit about um, the sea lion thing that I'm working on currently, which I find very similar in a very fascinating mm -hmm. way, except it's based almost exclusively on historic documents, um, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So anyway, let's... so. As a player, let's let's yes. remove the all the uh, sociological, psychological, anthropological stuff. Okay. Do you, I mean how how does the Just Playing Cast game rate compared to you know other games that you've played online in recent times and maybe even you know in, in broader times? Okay. How does it compare? How does it compare? So the first, the most obvious thing that springs up to me is you know being being a theory kind of guy, being a game designer. I love the rules mm. and that's not because I want to muscle in on the game master's realm or anything like that. I just somehow want to know how it goes. And I always, and I kept on to you about this, didn't I? Mm. You know, kind of, uh, when can I see the, the resolution mechanics? Well, uh, I mean, and this is what I find kind of curious because the rules aside from small elements, of the resolution mechanics were all available like prior to the game. So, yeah. When you created the character, you had basically yeah. the the player's handbook worth of rules. The resolution mechanics is really like half a paragraph in addition to that. And I think we resolved that pretty well within the first couple of games. Yeah. But then what was interesting was that you had broader kind of meta questions and certainly leading into this discussion today, uh, yeah. you yeah. wanted to yeah. know about the role of, of dice and groups and yeah. whether I was rolling for individuals. And what I moved to actually, because I realized that certain people were reacting to every time I rolled the dice was I have two layers of foam matting, which I put down, and I made sure that I wasn't rolling the dice in front of the camera just to not give the sense of, of impeding doom, which basically seemed to be coming anyway. So I, I changed that yeah. within the last two games, and I think your your pretty immediate reaction was, have you stopped rolling dice? What's going on with the dice? Where are the dice here? What's, what's going on with this dice? So, I mean, I certainly you, feel that from your, your kind of perspective as a player. You, you need to patent some silent dice. That's... <laughs> That's what you need to patent. Foam dice. Um, I, I, I felt, 
I don't know. I don't know what it was. I felt like there was I, something. I mean, I didn't care. In a way, I didn't care because I was looking forward to the games yeah. and that was all fine. But I felt like, oh, uh, how does it, how is this thing going to work? You know, and th- when I did ask and you did explain and we've had other exchanges about it, you know, somehow it's taken me ages to just realize, oh, the rules, the mechanics are incredibly, incredibly simple. Mm. They're so simple that they're kind of, <laughs> blink and you miss it which is not to say that there wasn't mechanical depth or machination or uh you know game happening it was just they were so simple that i was i was on the lookout for something more complicated Mm. that's what i've realized it was that i was doing and you probably told me over and over again and and that's really interesting because then that flips the game towards the scenarios, the adventures, the world, the setting, and and so I don't. So so as a player, if I'm a, if I maybe maybe I I don't know if I if if my tendency would be towards more mechanics, a bit more mechanics, and that's where I had this feeling that there was some mechanic that you were the dice rolling that you were doing that that I wasn't that I wasn't privy to, that we, the players, weren't privy to. So I was wondering, what's he doing? What's he not doing? It's an interesting interesting kind of juxtaposition because I think the explicit nature of rules... I mean, I basically, when I did 5th edition D&D, I played it pretty similar. I mean, I think the the background rolling is more me playing games with myself. So, like, for example, there are various scenarios where I think, what's the probability of this happening? What's the probability of this happening? Oh, what's the probability of this happening? And then I construct that mathematically while, you know, other things are going on. And then I roll mm-hmm. based on that, which changes elements of the scenarios. Um, the balance between dice rolling and plot, I think, is very interesting here. And certainly mm-hmm. there were typically each scenario that released between a dozen to two dozen like plot points that, and usually the worst case scenario, I think you hit five of them when I had 20 plus of them. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it was mm-hmm. one of these situations where there, there are two kind of layers. There's the first lower level probabilistic layer. And within that, which is something that you raised, which I wanted to talk about, sometimes these probabilities are based on individuals or groups. Sometimes these things mm-hmm. switch between groups to individuals to groups to, you know, and the way in which I do that is, I also play D&D that way. I think it's independent of the rule system. I think it's yes. a way that you can construct a universe and play it accordingly. And compared to perhaps a slightly more mechanical or novice perspective associated with how these games are played, it's something... And you mentioned that you played RuneQuest recently. I wanted to touch on that briefly. Mm-hmm. But RuneQuest, mm-hmm. Matthew Gibson, being 11 in this world, like 11 years old, in this world, mm-hmm. in parallel having almost mythological connections with various mathematical ideas. You know, all these things came together. So what you see here is a representation now 34 years on, well, 33 years on from that. But it gives me an ability to reproduce a style of gameplay which I saw in part through Matthew Gibson, uh, which was really mm-hmm. part of the beauty of playing this game, because I've not... I've, I don't think Matthew Gibson's played as a player for many years. <laughs> so he, mm-hmm. he was in an mm-hmm. interesting position, but he also, I think, could see elements, and I really need to talk to him about this, of his own historical mm. 
gameplay style because I learned so much. And but we're probably talking about six hours of my life. Well, in terms of the actual conversation, probably about nine hours of my life, but six mm-hmm. hours of actually observing and participating in gameplay. And that just completely blew my mind. And at the same time, I was already mm-hmm. interested in the, at the time, which is what the early nineties, I guess, late eighties, there was this notion of free form role playing, which is role playing without any rules. Mm-hmm. So in that environment, it really is just storytelling plus storytelling plus. Occasionally. Yes. So coming to it with this notion that everything should be uh, kind of additive, nothing should take away from your experience of it. The rules are there to be interpreted and also, which didn't happen with this game, but certainly happened with the D and D game at work. Occasionally we came to points of rules interpretation, which I always mm-hmm. found really interesting because it's a kind of, it's a maturity of a rule system, but also a maturity of the game players that are participating in this. And, you know, asking people how they think rules should operate, what they represent. Does it map to the real world? Is it even tangible in a kind of real world mm-hmm. discussion? I think is really fascinating as well. Not so many, mm-hmm. ironically, when we played just playing cars at work, we had a couple of those points, but it was mainly mm-hmm. associated with shootouts, which we strangely didn't have a lot of in this game. But that was in large part due to the way the players chose to play it as well, I think. Anyway. Well, you kept, you kept taking our weapons off well, us. Well, you kept putting yourselves in positions where you went to <laughs> take it away. The, the easiest way to hold on to a weapon is to use it, right? Not using a weapon well, the, is a great way yeah. to lose a weapon, right? So, anyway. How, but, okay, how many, how many times did the entire team lose all of their weapons? Well, how many times did, did the you? entire team completely pay everything <laughs> passive? Like, Oh yeah, we're just walking into this situation. We've got guns on us, but no, let's not prepare ourselves in any way for the fact that these things need to be used. I, mean, I think what was fascinating through this was just historically when I've, you know, in the past, whatever, four years, there's always been at least one player who's just played at what I call YOLO, you only live once, which means literally mm-hmm. they play their character like the character has a death wish and they're just going to take yeah. this to an extreme. And what's interesting here is I had hopes. I had hopes here that maybe <laughs> one of you would take that role. And to yeah. a certain extent, you, you were responsible for the mattress, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I think you could have played it that way. And particularly the, the, the spoiler alert associated with the game is Barney emailed me, I think uh, just before the last game or second to last game, he was having some nuances and he said, I want to be killed. What was it that you wanted to be completely killed in a, a horrible means? And this was going to be your, your answer from the game or something. Oh yeah, no, you could, you could, uh, you could, yeah, you could just, yeah, slaughter me doing some, yeah, just trying to do something, just you know, support. I don't know, support the cause. Um, go out and you know, and just yeah, just get get wiped out. Were you pleased with that resolution where basically every player had to question your motives in a very confrontational <laughs> fashion? Um, was I happy with it? It was, it was totally fine. It was totally fine, and it worked. It worked as an ending really nicely. I mean, it it wasn't much. There wasn't much game. I just died. Um, so, well, you didn't, you didn't but, plead your case particularly. Again, you didn't plead your case particularly strongly in certain well, circumstances. Well, no, no. But see, 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 well, see. I would say that I was I was playing. You only live once. I was I was basically just just going for it. I wasn't going to, to try and tell them that they shouldn't or. Um, I mean, I did. I did try and tell them that I had friends in higher places, and that they they wouldn't be the end of it. You had potential to so, turn so, on another player, though, in this circumstance, which I thought there were a couple of yeah. players that you could have turned on, and you were just like, "No, that's fine. I'm just going to be the one that gets killed. That's the way it's going to happen." So uh, yeah. yeah, 
but that you know that exposes yeah all sorts of interesting things. So I mean, I guess I I I might have played it a bit more wild and reckless, but it, but I felt like I don't know. I felt like that wouldn't necessarily go fit with the group. Mm. I think, um, and and I think on the one hand, whilst I want to be completely wild and reckless and just blow up everything, I'm also respectful of the fact that. Um, that that other people are um, are entitled to be their way. So I mean, I didn't as I, within the world, if you like, my character didn't have didn't really have any gripes with any of the rest of the team. Um, so I wouldn't have I wouldn't have turned on other members of the group, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, would we have a bit more gung ho about it? I think I think um, I think when we started the game. We, I think we all felt quite civilised. We felt like civilised people. Um, of course, within the elite, who have some vague idea of how privileged they are, and that we're, we're kind of, we're, we're subject to, we're under, we're under attack. We were under attack from insurgents. So that immediately set up this kind of civilised idea. We're trying to get across town in a civilised way, in a firefight, um, which, which of course led to some very sub-civilized actions. But, um, I don't think it, it, I don't think we got into the groove of being, of being really gung-ho about it because none of us really were. Me and, you know, Jason and I, um, had previously had a novelty hunting business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always kind of waiting in the wings and, you know, Jason and I, you know, had two mattresses. We had a mattress each at one point. So, um, we, we, we did, we did give it a go, but, but I, but I don't, you know, we were, we were just, you know, doing what, like, you know, stag parties and, um, stuff like that. You know, we weren't, um, extremist weapon. Uh, weapon carriers with the with the with the political axe to grind about our liberty or anything like that. So none of us, none of us wanted to take on the uh, the revolutionaries, did we? The insurgents. We well, that's interesting we wanted because to certainly just... the backstory was varied between the characters, which is not something you saw. I mean, you saw that I presented you with a story, but I also presented yeah. everyone else with stories. And certainly a couple of players, I mean, Matthew in particular, wanted to be very sympathetic with the, with the, you know, the rebels. And I think you yeah. to a certain extent had some discussion of that. In fact, I think multiple characters approached me out of the game and said, we mm-hmm. are probably slightly more sympathetic to the rebels than everyone else, which I thought in of itself yeah. was quite telling. But the playing, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. The, the people that I've, that I've experienced who have been really strong YOLO players, and they haven't always done it uniformly. It's not like they just sometimes find this character and they're like, within this character, I can, I can, you know, take on the world and do a whole series of really yes. stupid and, and reckless things. And I think the, perhaps the framing that none of you were in that light was part of it. But I think certainly, I mean, and this probably is for the conversation with Matthew as well. Once you take on a sense that you're, slightly sympathetic to the force that is coming on mass to take over how do you actually play that like what subtlety and in the case of matthew there were a couple of kind of text messages he sent me and these kind of things which didn't work out particularly well because i didn't have my phone close by in one of the cases um but 
what I hoped for was actually to bring in more, unfortunately times just didn't allow for it, but bring mm. in more of the kind of YOLO players somewhere through the scenario. Sean, for example, mm-hmm. who was supposed to be playing, I think would mm-hmm. have taken a very studied line to how he could play. And rather than being a reckless YOLO player, I think he would have played it um, just at points of sabotage and things like that, potentially. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the dynamics, it, it could have been many things, but what interested me actually at the end was we did go through, a large part which you led, a kind of deconstruction of the way the game had been played, because I was very interested in that. Um, and mm-hmm. also, like, why... I mean, the phenomenon of losing weapons, I think... Yeah, I, I don't know. In parallel to a lot of this stuff, I've been, you know, watching the rise of fast online games. I only see them through YouTube. I've tried to play a couple of them, but it never ends well. And through that, you have really strong kind of YOLO narrative players that um, mm-hmm. behave in very strange situations. It's interesting seeing in parallel to doing this, like within one's brain, so to speak, what's happening with these kind of online games that are doing it as well. Um, because you do see very interesting play styles where I think, I don't know, because of the immediacy, that's the visual imagery, a variety of different factors, I think within an online game, people are probably more likely, or m- maybe just the online game players, are more likely to play, you know, not so clinging on to dear life kind of characters, but more. Um, and I think that was what interested me in this game was that if perhaps it had been a computer game, uh, where you could literally see yourself picking up the guns and holding the guns mm-hmm. and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. If it would have been played differently, if the psychologies of the various players would be like, I have a gun now. Like I physically seen this character mm-hmm. with a gun. Now I went, you know, mm-hmm. instead of let's just get initiated by putting our weapons down and doing this other stuff, why don't we use the guns in this game? So, I mean, I think the might, and maybe that is on, I'm always thinking like, what could I have done as, as the, whatever games, mechanic, master, what have you, to mm-hmm. change this thing. And maybe instilling more holding of a firearm or these kind of things, maybe that was an element. I, I don't really know because I think a lot of it well, is down to player choice, right? And you don't want to eliminate that. What, what, you're, what you're talking about there, I wonder if that comes back to the old topic, one of our old topics of the war game role play opposition because if if we had been playing for example just playing chaos the skirmish mm, with miniatures game yeah we would have been i think you know or even just with kind of online tokens mm. you know moving around as maps it would immediately i think you know switch it into that combat mode where where you know there's there's there, there's very little role play if you like it's 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 very mechanical. It's uh, very tactical, strategic, whatever. Um, and there's there's none of that qualitative, or there's less of that qualitative uh, discussion, negotiation going on. So, and I and so I wonder if the video games might. I wonder. I don't know because I don't play them. But I I wonder if they they seem like they would be role play games, but really they're first person. War games. So the visualization element is one that I find. I mean, is it maybe with cards, for example? So you you mm-hmm. have your possessions as cards in front of you that you can see. You know, maybe there are elements that can be can you know you can learn in part from the kind of video game environment. But yeah, mm-hmm. to be continued. I mean, I think I, I, with the stuff that you're yeah. doing, you're moving very heavily into like visual. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a substantial visual component to the stuff that you're doing. And I think that's, you know, we'll talk about that in another podcast, but maybe that is a way to actually address some of these issues is to just make some parts of the game element more visual. Yeah, I mean, you know, some, I was, I was thinking about this topic of, of where it, where it leads in, you know, from mechanics to, to, to play styles, you know, including the game master style and the player's styles. And some of the feedback, you know, that I had got on a game was, was about, but that was initially posed to me as being a mechanical question or or point that was raised, and it quickly became clear that really it was about play style, and it wasn't it wasn't a uh, it wasn't really a criticism or anything like that. And interestingly, I think it was one of those I like this, but other people might not. And then then you get into this really interesting zone where people are not actually saying, well, then they are saying what they like, but they're imagining that other people don't like it. Mm. Um, but it's all very good, all very constructive. And and so so the point was something that might seem that it's mechanical actually might be about play style or presentation style or something like that and that's really fascinating because it is it's all about this readability on these different levels and so with your dice rolling i felt like i couldn't read it you were this kind of black box in that way Hmm. and and on the one hand i like that and on the other hand i don't and i suppose when i game master and with some of the other games that I play, the the premise is often to be pretty transparent with things. You know, there'd be one or two things that would be obscured. Now, I've played in other games as well, you know, other than yours, where where game master roles are very secret, very secretive. Um, and in a way, both ways are equal. Me personally, I, I kind of want to. I want to know. I want to see the random generation of events. Could that be because you so, feel yourself more in the games master space than the player space in a lot of this? I mean, I think what's interesting, certainly in in now experience with just playing chaos, yeah. is that I realised that you, through just necessity, through how you are, you yeah. need to. And maybe I mean I don't know if you'd ever see yourself playing as a kind of. GM role in a just playing chaos game, a controller role in a just playing chaos game. But yeah, I found it fascinating that you did have these kind of more games master concerns. And what interests me, <laughs> I think the nature of dice rolling just as a thing, um, which is independent of games, I think, um, just the construct, the way in which you construct universes, the way in which you construct probability in universes, maybe prior to games, you roll a bunch of dice and, create a deterministic universe which doesn't require any dice rolls through the game itself. But, I mean, you must, when you are in a Games Master position, I mean, do you narrate to the players, and now I'm going to roll these dice, and if these rolls happen, then this will happen, if these rolls happen, then this will happen. How do you construct transparency if you're rolling dice in Mm. a game, in a Games Master role? I suppose that depends... It depends on the moment, you know, like you say that you construct the probabilities on the fly. Um, I, I guess those moments also come on the fly where you might, if it, you know, if it's quite pivotal, you might say, okay, if it's, if it's this to this, um, it's going to go badly. If it's this to this, it's going to go in your favor or so, you know, something. Do you narrate that to the player? 
I, I might do. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, the, the, the other thing would be, you know, a good old random table. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go through the whole random table. I think it's about this feeling of, which I like as a player and as a GM, this, this feeling of, okay, none of us know exactly what's around this corner. Let's find out. And I think just having that, and I, and I think you did, were doing that in, in some ways, a lot of the time as well. Um, so I, I just, I guess my feeling is why not, why not just, uh, have that more open, but the scope of possibilities presented yeah. to the player oftentimes will give them response changes for want of a better term. And I mm-hmm. think that scope of possibilities is something that could potentially overwhelm certain players, could mm-hmm. potentially create responses from players which are, artificially created around that. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the um, there is a fine line between transparency and creating a world, right? Um, sure. I like the idea in part of, of pre-rolling everything and then just having a series of kind of crossed out tables, markers, ticks, what have you, and then seeing how the players go through that. But I think some of that doesn't allow for player interaction and perturbation of the universe. Totally. Which I think is incredibly totally. important. I was I was listening to someone talking about on a, on another podcast and my brain's just gone completely blank and they're kind of talking about how uh, uh it's it's my friend Andy Goodman on Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks and he's talking about running Masks of Nyarlathotep for for Call of Cthulhu and and he's and he talked about how you can have this plan but as soon as you introduce players into it, it like as a Heisenberg principle, exactly. yeah. it goes in another direction. And that's, you know, of course, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I, I think I've said this to you before, but for me, I think the heart of role-playing, and I think in my interpretation of your experience, those six hours playing with, with Matthew, my, 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 my belief in the power of role-play is in the movement between the, the 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 game world and the play world mm. uh, is that the uh, how no the, I, I understand the, what you mean yeah. perfectly but for and me if I can just reinforce that point yeah for me the Matthew playing with Matthew created a richer but also I probably hadn't actually been a player in a game like that for maybe even at age eleven probably three or four years. Because it was the role mm-hmm. that I took as the games master, uh, mm-hmm. even from a young age. But the ability, the richness of the environment, the the mystical nature of how Matthew had constructed magic, for example, the mm-hmm. a series of different things, which I found absolutely fascinating in the RuneQuest environment, created mm-hmm. what what you describe as a richness of experience, which not only impacted me in terms of the game, but also impacted my thinking associated with how games should be played going forward. And I think that yes. is probably the strongest way that I can reinforce what you were saying, that this wasn't just a, I'm playing a game experience. This is a, yeah. I understand universe building as a thing, and I understand, and Matthew's particular perspective on this thing spun me in a different direction associated with how I did mm-hmm. it in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I think for everyone involved, that movement, that shuttling is the word I tend to use between, if you like, the rules and the systems and the, the fictions 
that's where the that's where the power that's where the animation is is that kind of oh i'm doing something mm. oh and that translates as dice or stats or something or how can i how can i use the stats to move the fiction forward and how does the fiction uh move the the stats for you know like progression system or probabilities all of those kinds of things so it's it's this kind of is it's as if you've got one eye on the fiction and one eye on the system and so so for me you know i i just i just love negotiating both of those realms and that's where i'd come back to answer your question that that yes probably playing as a player in your game i was my motives were probably on on the side of game design being involved in it myself and often game mastering myself but um i at no point did i want to take over from what you were doing but i come back to your point that you made when i when i had you on my podcast where you talk about the game master perturbing the players mm. and i think the 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 opposite is also true Certainly. that players need to perturb the game master and but that's not a it's not a negative conflict it's always a positive conflict so so if if i if i seem like i'm playing in the game master mode that was that might partly be true it's also circumstantially true but it's also just digging into that potential of of play and moving between those different worlds and 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 that productive antagonism that you get there's a gestalt here which i think i just yes. want to reinforce it is not just rules plus you know environment the thing that i got out of rules plus environment plus matthew gibson is something that i learned from that the gestalt of the of the intelligence creativity i don't know unpredictability irascibility mm -hmm. in some cases of the mm -hmm. games master mm -hmm. creates an experience which is far more and this i think is the difficulty in it being communicated i mean obviously you listen to a lot more of the podcasts um in the space than i do but i think the the gestalt from this is what i really learned from in matthew's case and it spun me like i said in a different direction but also mm -hmm. it made me feel that um of the experiences that i convey to people my role as a games master historically, like when I was a child, was always mm -hmm. incredibly important. When I returned to this, thanks in large part to Derek Stutzman, who you've now met on a few occasions, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I realized that I had to bring that, that element back. I had to bring that gestalt back. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really find fascinating that some of it can be described. Some of it has to actually be enacted. But thinking about it more... It is associated with a very particular kind of, not necessarily polymath discipline, but it's just, it touches on so many different aspects. And I mm -hmm. think this is something that fascinated me seeing it in Matthew's presentation and something which I've tried to take away from that experience and represent that in some small manner, uh, basically in the, in the games that I've, um, you know, run for a better term. Well, I mean, but presumably as well, that, that factored into, even the mechanics of just playing chaos or any other game. You mean the lessening of the mechanics or the way well, which the yeah, mechanics were not yeah, as. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you know, because, because, about because mechanics. you want, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Because what? Because you want to facilitate for yourself and for other people directly, and then other people indirectly to have a certain type of experience, and not to have to reinvent the wheel or, you know, have anything too overwhelming, and at the same time to have all of the possibilities for depth and exploration that they might want, and. And, and, and as we've talked about, and as you talk about, and we all talk about, some games seem to encourage that freedom more than others. Or, so, you know, some seem about, seem to be about locking stuff down, and others well, seem I mean, to be I about opening up. I mean, I think there's always a up. choice associated with that. I mean, you've, you've experienced fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. You had a particularly visceral reaction to that experience. I put to you that maybe, the way I play it is distinctly different, perhaps, than the way that you experienced it. And um, certainly we had, and some of the YOLO players were these players, we had players that came with the rules, having read the rules, having looked mm. to exploit the rules, and within maybe two or three games, they started to realize, ah, Tom's not really playing it like that. Like, returning to the Gestalt, there's something more mm. here than just the mm. rules. We've got to start mm. exploring this. And it was interesting, actually... When they called, specifically called rules on me, they said, the rule says this. And I said, I'm doing it like this. And yeah. it's not, they're, they're not incompatible. I am just interpreting the rule with this interpretation and you have taken it with this interpretation. I think in part, I'm sure you studied philosophy at some level in your various, um, you know, wanderings. <laughs> My perspective yeah. is that, um, you know, when I, when I studied philosophy academically, I realized that there was the whole nature of, interpretation is something which is beautifully presented with what you would think were even the most buttoned down rules there is still a certain amount of give um even within those rules so well it's, it occurs to me that the the field the discipline of interpretation by definition has to remain unfinished or unbounded or always open otherwise it's not interpretation it'd be called something like definition mm. um you know and, and i mean you know taxonomy i think is a great thing i love it because you can have all this fun with it you know you can you know on the one hand you're making lists and categorizing things but you can just come up with another one that i don't know configures things in a completely different way so um even when you think you've got a kind of a principle of stability or order um it's it's just a framework to do whatever the hell you like with right i have a fascinating example from my own life maybe not fascinating but it's an example nonetheless as a boy i studied electronics as you do as some boys do uh relays circuitry resistors capacitors all this kind of stuff my grandfather was a desert rat um he uh survived north africa up through sicily up through europe um, and basically drove trucks for the army through that period, most mm. of it. He had different rules for electronics than I did. So we had okay. circuitry and diagrams where he would say, this won't work. And I'd say, demonstrably, I can show you this working. And then he'd say, this won't work because of this. And then I showed him the circuit working. And then we kind of dived into different areas. But the nature of that <laughs> made me realize very strongly that the solidity the rigidity that people use with regards to you know logic naming conventions all these kind of things can mm. still through someone who is in part self-taught in part i mean both my grandfather and i were self-taught in different areas right 
but it was fascinating mm-hmm. coming to terms with, and he was considerably more hostile than I was about this, <laughs> but it was fascinating just to see that people can construct their lives with completely different logic rules, still live mm-hmm. quite comfortably, well, although I'm, I'm a work in progress, I might not, but still live quite comfortably to the end of one's life with completely different principles, which still enable you to deal with the world in a very productive and reasonable fashion. Yeah. And I think that is yeah. a, a, one of the counterbalances to my life that I've always returned to that, um, you know, the, the, and it's a great way of actually understanding living in different parts of the world as well. Like how people mm-hmm. live so differently. Anyway. So I think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. basically what, uh, what is on offer here. I wanted to perhaps conclude the just plain chaos discussion for now. Any final thoughts, any final points of feedback, anything that you wanted to just leave? The okay. Um, so I really enjoyed the character creation process. Hmm. So. I I wonder if, as you put all of this together, if there could be a random table of different professional backgrounds or life backgrounds or whatever mm. you want to call them, so that you could roll on that, so that you 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 have this spark of a of a person, and then from that, uh, I I wanted to, on the one hand, optimize optimize my point by um, which, which, which fascinated me as well. It took me a moment, like with the other, the opposite sides of the dice and all of that. And I was going, ah, oh, and then I thought, that's really nice. I really like it. And it, and it creates a, an evenness About, without, yes. uh, exactly, but without ironing out differences. So yes. really nice. So, so there was all of that. And, and so I, so I had my points to spend and I really wanted to spend them the most, the, the, the most efficiently. But I also wanted to put flesh on the bones of this character. So that my, you my had perspective given is me. that this would be an optional thing. I think for a majority, certainly a majority of the people that I play with, they don't want to do that. But for you, I think I can add it as an optional thing. I think I think it's great because even if 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 I imagine myself to GM it, say, wait, okay, I'm going to give people five you know, five players, five character backgrounds, ding, 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 ding. And they're not me deciding who it's going to be. It's this, this array of, of, of alternative near future, whatever we want to call it, back or, or characters. And then, but, but beyond that, it was, it was nothing. There were no, you know, there were no modifiers or uh, special languages or anything like that. It was simply, here's the, Here's where this person's come from. Do what you want to do with it. Construct that how you like. So I really, really enjoyed that. And, and yeah, that, that kind of put me, put me, what I thought, what I, I thought it put, you know, I, I felt like it put me in the world. And then of course you, uh, you, you knocked us, knocked us out from the word go. So that all took, uh, took other, other directions, which was also really good and fine and nice. Um, 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 other, I thought the group was really nice. I thought I really enjoyed the the whole Pulitzer. Uh, it was you know sometimes the Pulitzer idea was a joke, and then at other times it, it seemed to <laughs> a defining gain factor. A, yeah, it seemed to give a little bit of something, a little bit of motivation. Um, I I think I said this in the discussion afterwards. I think you did a great job of. Giving us a sense of scale, size, time, 
and at the same time, it was a very bounded scenario. It was very clear that we weren't really getting out of the city. And that was a really interesting glimpse into this, uh, this, this world that you've, uh, that you've, that you've, that you've grown out of those real life experiences. Um, so that was, you know, having had our discussions and then playing in the game, you know, that, that just felt really nice and really good. I suppose the games, the games now, now, you're not, you're not on Discord, are you? I've tried Discord a few times. You've, yeah. And I've created small communities which have been perturbed in some case, but then just drop off. I think the Discord is a lot like Twitter. You need to, it's, it's yeah. very well designed for people that have, you know, three to six hours of, of time per day that they can be somewhere <laughs> casually, right? No, 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 no. You see, so, so I've, I'm, I'm in there basically very rarely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm talking about mid- maintenance. Say. I'm not talking about as an individual. Oh. I'm talking about if you're creating a Discord community, you need at least a couple of people oh, that are going to, that are going sure. to be there passively for a good portion yeah. of the time. Um, you know, but, yeah. yeah. But, but, I, but I also use it to message certain people. It mm. becomes a, a message platform. You know, it's funny how you message different people on different platforms. Mm. I find in life, but it's really interesting to see the the little communities where the the uh, the 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 if you like the consumers. It's the it's the wrong it's the wrong word for it. But the the people who aren't the creators of the games. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to see which ones that community really starts to create stuff, and that could be random tables or illustrations or maps or even just asking creators uh clarify you know clarifying a rule or coming up with a house rule or something where they feel they can do that and so i think i think that giving giving people who invest in it in as, as much in times of in terms of time and creativity as money giving them the feeling that they can add something I think seems to be a really important thing within the kind of indie communities. And of course that would spill out into open license, you know, stuff as well. Mm. But so, so my, my kind of thought or question is to you, Tom is you've created this amazing world. And I think it would be really worth making sure that there are opportunities and ways that people can, can dig in and generate their own. Certainly. I think I mean, elements, elements, I their own elements. Discord to me, as someone who's created communities previously has required the, and I don't know your discord experience, but if you logged onto a discord server where even if you're doing it periodically, just to ping and what have you, it needs to have some life to it. I created a, uh, what is mm-hmm. it now? Maybe eight years ago, I created a forum for, uh, simulation, particular kinds of simulation, mm-hmm. biological simulation. Mm-hmm. And um, I had it online for maybe two years. And that gave me a lot of interesting, like, learning deltas associated with how active a forum needs to be in order for it to reach that self-productivity mm-hmm. level. Discord is similar because you need to have a, just a group of people that are going to be there on the order of once a day just to ping people, just to create a community there. 
So mm-hmm. that requires, um, usually, for me, it re- would require me to be on that, you know, community for <laughs> more time, unfortunately, than I have currently. Otherwise, I would need to find people that were willing to to be on there. Now, sometimes organically, and I've not done Kickstarter, but sometimes organically through things like Kickstarter, certainly through certain times of my open source project, um, you know, IRC channels, which is basically the the older, grayer, um, you know, grandfather of Discord. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I had maintenance people on there sufficient to maintain these things, but it does, infrastructurally, it requires... A community of, I mean, it could just be 10 people, but that is, that is willing to check in on a daily mm. basis and give the perception that, you know, it's at least an active well, community. Well, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily saying rush to Discord, go to Discord, that's the way. It was more that my feeling is, and this is as much in my thinking about my projects, mm-hmm. that people, can more readily get into into the thing that you're offering if if there's some way that they they are offering something mm. in it. So and that comes back to the kind of the organicity element of these things. So I think I think for for people to get into your this world that you've created, which has all of this this you know all this fascinating stuff, and people should really go back and listen to that interview. Uh, on those interviews on on my podcast, I think for that insight of, of that background of, of where this, the ideas came to you, or the, those experiences, um, really fascinating. You know all that sociological hmm. stuff going on. Um, I, I guess I was just thinking if for people to for people to get in and explore that. There need to be these ways for them to feel they can get in and and create their own little um, uh, uh, cultures, if you like. You know, like you know, as in as in funguses or Certainly. whatever they would be. We, we you t- know, that kind of. We talked a little mm. bit about the scenario book, which I think is the mm. next thing that I'm. It's mm. interesting because the Sea Line project has kind of come out of that. I did want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the Sea Line project before we wrap things up, but the scenario book very much was an idea of. 12 different scenarios in this world with the mm. view that the rules are relatively thin. So that mm-hmm. could be like, you know, the first ultra thin chapter. And then you get into the, the detail and depth basically of the various scenarios. So that mm-hmm. was my thinking was that the scenario book was going to be that vehicle to explore mm-hmm. to the nth degree, not just what you guys have completed in Vista mm-hmm. Park, but also a variety of different scenarios. Now, sea line, this sea line project, which originally was just to play or create a just playing chaos setting in London in 1940 with a German invasion, has become something so, that's a bit more um, uh-huh. computer simulation, a bit more you know vast map analysis, and it's now getting you know fringe academic interest, which is always fun. So I mean, okay. I think what's interesting through this is through. The scenario booklet, through exploring the scenario booklet, I've actually kind of stumbled upon something which has never, has, has been played out in terms of various popular and academic writing, but has mm. never been played out in large scale simulations. I don't, the games that are available around Sea Line are pretty precursory. They're not to the level of depth that I'm, you know, working on. So mm-hmm. I think that is a project you want to have. Uh, I mean, one of the benefits I had with my early simulation work 
was I had astronomers, philosophers, astrophysicists, biologists, a variety of different <laughs> people in an academic sphere that all immediately said, oh, yeah, we've been looking for this forever. Like, you know, let's, let's get this tool together and let's, you know, prod and promote and, you know, make it something um, which, you know, seems to have a lot of really curious intellectual buy-in, which made mm -hmm. that project very easy for me to spend mm -hmm. 23, 24. In fact, C-Line, a lot of C-Line is based on that underlying project. Mm -hmm. So I think what interests me is potentially the scenario book with the rules as a, an addendum, <laughs> the scenario book with the rules as an addendum, putting that out there, <laughs> be it Kickstarter or um, yeah. whatever, uh, and then creating a community around that um, yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. All these things require a lot of work on my part. I, I've I admired mm -hmm. a number of the uh, folks that you've, you know, been able to interview and talk with and, mm -hmm. you know, befriend and what have you, because they find the perfect tipping point, obviously a good amount of work, but just not like a mind-blowingly ridiculous amount of work. So finding mm -hmm. that tipping point, unfortunately, mm -hmm. is a little late with regards to the scenario book, unless I produce, you know, four scenarios plus a rule addendum, um, which is the possibility as well. Um, I think currently, I, on a kind of personal level, this whole um, situation with regards to kind of extended lockdown and a wide mm -hmm. variety of other things has just completely spun me in terms of how I look at projects mm -hmm. more than anything. Sea mm -hmm. um, Lion mm -hmm. works for me because I can work on it in the evening. I put in three hours a night and still not feel still feel like I'm not particularly productive. Um, writing, mm -hmm. you know, you write and 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 then you edit and you edit and you edit and you're back to where you started with and you write and write and write. So you've got this kind of, you mm -hmm. know, two steps forwards, five steps backwards um, kind of situation with writing. But it's interesting, I think, something in the next year, I think the sea line stuff, mm -hmm. just because of the, um, just the calibre of the people that have gotten in contact with me and the general level of interest mm -hmm. and also the immediate sense of a group of people that there's a need for this thing, is slightly mm -hmm. different than just playing chaos as a as a thing as well. So it'll mm -hmm. all come together. Uh, but yeah, I I do see Discord as being part of it. I just need a, a a group of users. I I'm very sensitive to kind of critical size, particularly with the open source projects I've worked on historically. Mm -hmm. I know when something has reached a critical size for a Discord channel because I know I'll have at least three users that will be online for at least six hours a day and willing to at least passively participate in discussions. Right. But without that, you end up with this kind of calling into an echo chamber kind of situation, which has happened with a number of the Discord channels I've set up historically. And then mm. you go back and, you know, I remember to log in in a month's time, which is the worst possible case scenario. Mm. Mm. And, you know, mm. it's all completely died. It's like, um, I don't know, an ant farm that hasn't been fed or what have you. But, so, but you know, Tom, I mean, I suppose, you know, these uh, any deadlines that you or I, in a way, set ourselves are completely arbitrary. Yeah aren't they so so the things will be ready if you like when they're ready That's but i definitely. think i think that you know i think i think you know the, the the players that you know i really enjoyed playing with all those other guys we had had a really good time and that that in itself was a thing and yes. you've got more coming through and and you know and i think just keeping keeping that going is all is 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 the is Feel you know if that, that that's that's got to be the right thing, hasn't it? And sure. if and if something else kind of spins off from that, that that if you like capitalizes on the clarity, the hard won clarity 
and can just hit the ground running and is done very fast or or has a different rapport with different people, then, you know, if that surprisingly is the direction, the next destination, then, you know, it's fine. And when you say just playing chaos with the sea line, you mean you mean the half page of rules, don't you? You mean using the that the rule system to take it to a different setting and is that is that right? So there are two parts. Well, actually, in my notes, at least there are four parts to this. But let's say there are two parts. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So, Sea Line, I think, is a really poorly. I've read a bit of the academic literature and a bit of the popular literature associated with it, and it's based on a single document that um, University of Oxford has. Uh, when you actually look at the broader scattered pieces of documentation that were found after 1945 you start to realise that this was going to be considerably more like Barbarossa than it was going to be like a Sunday picnic. The documentation that was found at the end of 1945 indicates there's about 140,000, you know, 60,000 airborne, uh, 80,000 coming by sea. It's like, you know, let's just explore what happens when we land in England. And this Mm -hmm. creates a very different perspective compared to some of what's coming through Mm -hmm. with the academic work. So anyway, Mm -hmm. take that aside. For me, um, I had an existing set of books, which I just own because that's just the kind of person I am. Proclivity wise, I find histories and, you know, put them in my shelves, particularly when they're original, so much the better. Um, but really the original documentation I'm finding absolutely fascinating. The levels mm-hmm. between what the government supplied to people and what commercial outfits supplied to people through this period is just fascinating. The nature that there was like an official, you know, you are the home guard versus a, pocketbook to learning how to become the home guard, you know, all the different mm-hmm. training, which is non, mm-hmm. non, you know, anyway. So lots of different fascinating things from a simulation perspective. The maps, mm. I just absolutely love. The Ordnance Survey maps of the time, they have a colour, mm-hmm. they have a texture, they certainly have a smell. Um, and doing that in computer simulation, I think, just adds something amazing to it. But having said that, when you have them simulated, you also have the ability to have a really rich map book that you can present to players that has not only, you know, the nuances with regards to the coastline, uh, okay. surveying, but yeah. also every single town. Every single town becomes a scenario, right? Every single yeah. town has its own. And they do. So there's the <clears throat> dad's army, let's say the uh, element yeah. that's in the yeah. room here. Um, there's the dad's army phenomena, which in the <laughs> 80s and 90s produced a wide variety of really unreadable histories of recollections of people that had had some connection to the home guard. I have a southeast of England home guard directory, which I think there's probably only 40 of these still in paper circulation. So I literally have the list of names and, and, and they're dotted addresses, but it's pretty easy to work out where they are, um, of every single person that was officially represented uh, in the home guard in uh, the mm-hmm. southeast of England, which is a fascinating mm-hmm. document, absolutely fascinating, because it shows both the formality and the informality of a lot of this. Um, mm-hmm. you know, literally just people meeting at scout halls and things like that. But it gives mm-hmm. you a really strong sense of, um, how curiously organic and untrained by the military a lot of this was. So, you know, there's lots <laughs> of really fat. The other thing that I'm finding fascinating is you just pick any two or three little villages in the southeast of England and they will all have World War II history that is not documented anywhere. You need to look back to structures that are damaged. This kind of nuances. The nature of the kind of damage that came through the Second World War is not very well, even if you go to individual 
you know, towns, um, you mm. know, contact archivists and what have you. It's more collecting an oral history of, oh, the Catholic Church then became a school because it was damaged in the Second World War. How was it damaged in the Second World War? There's nothing written about how it was damaged. So you've mm. got all this kind of lost memory element to it as well, which in simulation mm. just provides so much possibility. Um, so yeah, for me currently, and it's such a, a different thing to be studying in depth in the new normal as well. It's one of these mm. periods. I mean, the Pletnik's medals early on studying curious aspects of Napoleonic history. I now have a full translation of the Pletnik's, um, you know, biography that I've been through a couple of times. So it's finding these things to fixate on through the new normal. Mm. Um, mm. and Sea Lion, once I have these bits together, it means creating a, uh, just like house role playing setting through Sea Lion would just become like, you know, it, it makes Middle Earth look like a sandcastle, <laughs> right? So you have just this beautiful, rich <laughs> texture of an environment that is very real, but also, the, the notion of mythology I find fascinating, particularly with Napoleonic history, is basically mm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a mythology to it now. It's outside the realms of time, of certain things where the documentation... And sadly and curiously, the Second World War is moving into that. Obviously, the First World War has taken in some of that too. But the Second World War is vastly moving into that now, particularly associated with just you know loss of, of collective memory. So mm. this is where it gets very interesting, associated with... If you create well-documented mythology associated with things, it still, you know, captures an element of the time, which I think is, mm. you know, anyway. So mm. that's what's captivated me with Sea Lion. So, so is that, am I right in thinking that, that that's going to be more an, an online simulation than it will be a role-play game? Or are well, you thinking thing. it's going to be as, all the stuff? As I'm saying, let me say it again, perhaps in different words. To create a simulated environment sufficient to simulate this thing, with mm. primary source maps, you end up with amazingly high resolution, high detailed maps, which you can then yeah. crop into map books, right? This doesn't mm -hmm. have to exist just in a computer. You can mm -hmm. visually, and moreover, the things that, so there's this notion of vectorization, which is where you take, you know, lines on a page and you make them collections of points linking things up. So mm -hmm. the buildings become collections of points. Uh, roads become collections of points. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, railways become collections of points, rivers, you know, sea, what have you. And through mm -hmm. that, you can then create much higher resolution maps that explain things. So the ordnance survey maps, the resolution is about to, to a pixel because I had them digitally is about four meters a pixel. So that gives mm -hmm. a certain good space where you mm -hmm. can make out structures and what have you, but it still doesn't give an underlying, you know, level of detail. Once you do this through simulation, you get a lot of that internal stuff. And then, thankfully, I have a background in taking external structures and doing what-if scenarios, what the internal structure looks like based on that. I have existing simulation software that does that. Um, hmm. So this is the kind of collection of bringing things together. Like, I have all these bits of simulation software historically that did these things. Then I have this particular application, and let's use these two things together. Um, mm -hmm. so I think it's, it can easily be both. The computer simulation mm -hmm. part up front gives you the level of detail that makes, you know, Middle Earth seem like a sandcastle. Mm -hmm. You get the ability mm -hmm. then to explore. And in particular, 
There are certain towns that have sea lion mythology associated with them because they were specifically called out in the German documents associated with where, you know, the next hop would be before they got to London. So mm-hmm. you've got, uh, you know, Ashford, for example, which is an interesting town. Don't get me wrong. But there are tens of towns like Ashford, many of which did have Second World War damage, either through bombing or other means. And mm. there are there are many other possibilities. So rather than having a kind of linear progression of this is what everyone thinks sea lion's going to be like, suppose mm. Ashford put on a better defence. Suppose the home guard in Ashford mm-hmm. did too well and they had to move to another town. Well, what's the home guard like there? What are the structures? Then you get to London. And London, just mm-hmm. by football clubs alone, every area has its own different uh, intrinsic means of setting up defences. I have a... a a London mm-hmm. historian who's very excited about this part of it. So the nature is that the different regions in London, the different, which are now embodied in things mm-hmm. like football clubs, all would mm-hmm. have different means of defence, right? Mm-hmm. So irrespective of bombing, you need to eventually put boots on the ground, right? So mm-hmm. the kind of invasion force has to be, you know, working through, um, you know, Luton or, you know, <laughs> working through, you know, Mortlake or working through all these different areas, um, you know. And it, what's interesting here is that there's already a degree of, um, what's the term? Psychogeography is the term that people mm-hmm. use associated mm-hmm. with, um, you know, what, why, why is Arsenal different than West Ham? Like, mm-hmm. why are the fans different in, for Arsenal or for West Ham? Mm-hmm. Well, this also represents, you know, street fighting men, right? So what does street fighting men look like in these days? So you get all this kind of beautiful tapestry stuff, which I think um, is exciting a lot of different people when I talk to them about this project. So, well, that's, I mean, if you can get men, get them role-playing, which they might not have done before, then I think that's also good too, right? Many different possibilities. So anyway, Absolutely. that's the pitch associated with the operation. It's currently um, Sim Sea Line is what I'm calling it, which mysteriously I always have okay. to get quite comfortably um but yeah, yeah nothing nothing up currently because i'm getting the software to talk together and behave in a civilized fashion i have owed people youtube videos for quite some time associated with this i recorded a couple of them and i don't know uh, third, time's <laughs> third time's a charm okay yeah yeah so i mean so i would my i i would finish up by saying that um i i will i will get you playing an online game so be careful what you what you wish for there. Um, there's some talk of there's some talk of something coming up. So I'm mm. I'm very excited about very that. Very definite. I like that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Barney, it's been an absolute pleasure. I I hear the world evolving around you. I hear glasses is, being yeah. shattered and uh, various other noises, which would have gone back to the the original plan was actually re- to record a fake podcast with you this morning. <laughs> or well, we've st- yeah. We can simulate a fake podcast at some point, yeah. Most definitely. Absolutely. Anyway, I'll let you get to and, your as, evening. As, and... Well, but as always, as always, we've only talked about a tiny bit of what we thought we'd talk about. So um, there's got to be a next time, hasn't there? Well, it was part of the plan to get on your recording and do something similar. So Yeah. Good. I'll talk to Thank you soon, you, buddy. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye.